Hello and welcome back to Counterintuitive, a governance podcast. I'm your host, Dr Paul Sagar, a lecturer in the Department of Political Economy here at King's College London. And this podcast is made in association with the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society at King's College London. Each week on this podcast, I invite a speaker to come and defend an idea that is to some degree counterintuitive. I play the role of devil's advocate or sceptical inquirer in order to see where the ideas will take us. Of course, whether you agree with me or my speakers is, in the final instance, entirely up to you. Today on Counterintuitive, I'm speaking to Professor Mark Pennington. Mark is Professor of Political Economy and Public Policy here at the Department of Political Economy at King's College London. He's the author of numerous studies exploring the nature and limits of markets, and in particular the 2010 book Robust Political Economy, Classical Liberalism and the Future of Public Policy. He's also the director of the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society here at King's College London. Professor Mark Pennington, welcome to Counterintuitive. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thanks, Mark. So your position broadly construed is that most things, perhaps almost everything, should be for sale. But there are many cases in which people would argue that it's right that things are not for sale, that have been prohibited, usually through a legal framework. So I'd like today to explore with you the question of what and why should in fact be for sale. And maybe we could start with a relatively um, uncontroversial, perhaps from your point of view, but counterintuitive to many people's point of view, with illegal drugs. So in most countries in the world, this country, the United Kingdom, things like heroin, cocaine, ecstasy, cannabis, these psychoactive substances cannot be freely traded on an open market. If you're caught selling these things, you could potentially be sent to prison. But I'm going to guess from the outset that that's a prime candidate for you of the kind of thing that should be for sale. Could you explain briefly why you think that is? Uh, Yes. So I think there are two sorts of arguments that people typically will refer to for either banning the sale of a particular Uh, commodity or service um, or very heavily regulating it and you can divide those into kind of social welfare arguments that if you allow people to engage in certain kinds of exchanges there will be negative social consequences um, not only for the individual but some kind of wider uh, societal externality Uh, and then you might have some kind of moral argument which is that if you allow people to engage in the trade, um, it has some detrimental effect on their capacity to exercise autonomous decisions, or it it reproduces some kind of power imbalance, which is the reason that people entered into the uh, exchange in the first place. So those are the kind of reasons that people will give. In the case of drugs, it would be if you allow people to uh, buy and sell drugs freely, There are going to be many negative consequences that people don't have enough information to evaluate whether drugs will have harmful effects on themselves, um, but also the sort of social consequences from widespread drug use. And you might also get arguments which are moral claims that um, when people who engage in these sorts of trades, they do so out of some kind of you know, desperate situation. In this case, perhaps the person is mentally uh, disturbed or unstable, and they're not in a position to properly evaluate the kind of decision that they they are making. So I don't have a problem with those criteria, uh, these kind of social welfare criteria or moral type criteria. But I think many people who argue for uh, banning trades often apply those criteria inconsistently. So they don't look at possible negative or external effects from the ban. In the case of drugs, it's making it go underground. 
Um, it's the crime that's generated um, from the actual banning of the activity. You know, we've got very good examples from history, from prohibition in the United States, of what happened when alcohol was banned. And likewise, in the case of the, the moral um, argument, there's little consideration to the way in which banning something can actually deprive people of the autonomy that they get from being able to enter into trades, even trades that many of us would consider not ones that we personally would want to be involved in. So that would be the kind of argument that I look at, I develop, which is to say, you need to apply your criteria consistently to the alternative that, that's being proposed uh, when you're wanting to, to ban or very heavily regulate an activity. Great. So in the case of drugs, the position therefore would be banning it, in fact, creates more harm than good because you create an illicit black market. You put a, an extremely lucrative product in the hands of organized criminals. And in the process, you may interfere with the autonomy of adult free individuals who may want to partake in a recreational substance, which in most cases may produce no harm to other people. And at any rate, even if harm is produced on balance, more harm is produced by making it illegal than legal. And so, so I take it your position here is we need to look at the entire consequences of this framework, that banning something doesn't simply make it go away. It, in fact, has consequences of itself. We have to factor in those consequences. So that, that, that's really, I think, quite clear on the question of drugs and whether or not people agree on how that falls out. There's a, there's a sense in which we can all agree that that's one way to look at the situation. But I suppose if we take this framework, we can then start applying it to other examples that people may find progressively more counterintuitive. So how about trading in organs? So what about um, the idea that, well, I might want to sell my kidney, perhaps because I want to take the money for a kidney and buy a new car. Or alternatively, perhaps because I'm desperate and I need to feed my children. Now, many people would here start to say, well, hang on a minute. Surely we can't allow people to start selling their own organs. But I take it that you think it's not as clear cut as that. Absolutely. So, I mean, what you need to look, first of all, at what is the objection to kidney sales uh, rooted into or to organ sales more generally? Typically, it would be something along the lines of the two criteria that I set out before. So there may be some kind of social welfare argument that there'll be negative consequences to such society if you allow this to happen. Um, and you might also have some kind of moral argument that the, the autonomy of the person who's engaging in these kind of trades is compromised. Um, so those, I think, are the criteria that you should actually use. In the case of organ sales, I think the social welfare argument against sales is going to be one on the grounds of do people have the information to know what the consequences kind of trade are going to be? If you sell your kidney, um, you know, do you, do you know what the long-term health consequences may be from doing so, um, from having the operation to remove the kidney? Um, and also, you may have general arguments about should people be allowed to engage in dangerous sorts of activities, um, which, you know, having these kind of operations might involve. I think the moral argument would be one that the only circumstances in which people would engage in this sort of trade would be one of desperation, um, that they haven't got um, resources to sustain themselves and therefore they're driven into this kind of, of market. And I think the argument against allowing trade there would be that it actually removes the likelihood that we may get a better type of solution, which presumably would be that you make sure people are wealthy enough uh, to avoid being in situations where they have to trade their, their kidneys. So my argument would be in the social welfare case, 
People don't have perfect information. They never do about any trade that they involve, they're involved in. But typically they will have more information about their own circumstances than some kind of external agent who's going to be trying to regulate their, their conduct. So I might be in a better position to judge, even though I'm not going to be perfectly informed, whether or not um, this option is one that is, that is valuable to me, that it's better than the alternatives that I may personally face. And so on those grounds, just in the way that we allow people to make decisions to engage in other kinds of dangerous activities, like mi mixed martial arts, for example, um, or even playing rugby, uh, people should be allowed to, uh, to make those risk calculations themselves, even accepting that the information that they have isn't, isn't perfect. The claim is simply that they probably got more information to know about which deals they should do than some external actor. If we look at the, the moral or the autonomy argument, my argument would be, well, what are the alternatives? You know, in many cases where people think about these options, the welfare system isn't sufficiently developed. So are we going to say to people, well, you're not going to have the option to improve your life by making what is admittedly perhaps an undesirable type of transaction until that welfare system arrives? And, you know, we know that in many, many cases, well, you could be waiting a lifetime for that system to develop. Um, but I think, I think there's another argument here, which is that I don't see why having a welfare system is necessarily incompatible with people um, trading kidneys or organs. And this relates to this point I was making earlier about having a consistent sort of type of evaluative framework in place. So if you're not going to have a welfare system in place, such that people end up having to trade things like kidneys, presumably the reason for that is that people just aren't generous enough to provide the welfare. And if that's the case, then it seems to me you need to allow people to trade kidneys so that they can improve their position because the alternative just isn't going to be provided. But let's suppose you move to a better world where people actually are generous enough to make sure people have the resources where they don't need kidneys or organs just to get by in life. In those circumstances, it seems to me there's no reason to ban the sale of the kidneys because anybody who does enter into a trade in those circumstances isn't doing it out of desperation. They're doing it as uh, something that looks like a genuinely um, autonomous choice. So whether you're looking at the non-ideal conditions where we're in a background where people just aren't very generous, or you're looking at a situation where people are generous enough to provide um, welfare for people. There's no strong argument for uh, preventing people from engaging in these kind of trades. Great. But what would you say to somebody who said, okay, but let's, let's stick in the non-ideal scenario that we're likely to find ourselves in. In reality, we're not going to get one-to-one -one trades when it comes to kidneys. We're going to get a situation where there are people who need kidneys desperately, or they're going to die or be on dialysis for a very long time. It's extremely unpleasant for them. And there are people who may want to sell their kidneys because they may want the financial return, but they can't communicate with each other. What's actually going to happen is third-party middlemen are going to have to facilitate this transaction. And what you're going to have there is potentially two problems. One, the exploitation of both sides by an actor in the middle to facilitate the transaction, which may itself be problematic because you could see in, you know, perhaps large corporations making an enormous profit at the expense of vulnerable people. 
And secondly, that there's just something inherently wrong about that in and of itself, that you shouldn't have vulnerable people who may be weak in a market position being predated upon, as it might be seen by those with more market advantage in order to secure themselves a private profit. But there's something intrinsically important about the integrity of the human body here. So there's two different arguments, but they are, of course, connected in various ways. What might you say in reply to that kind of response? Well, the, the argument about some sort of fundamental integrity of, of the body, I, I'm very, personally, I'm very skeptical of those kind of claims because they are sort of based on a kind of naturalistic view that there's some kind of, you know, objective reality about what we ought to do with our, our bodies. Um, but we know from looking at different cultures that people in different cultural contexts approach these things differently, whether it's uh, attitudes to sex, um, attitudes to other sorts of things that many of us think to be sort of natural, they're actually quite culturally contingent. Uh, and so when you're in a world where you've got multiple different cultures that are interacting, I don't think there's any one standard um, of what's a kind of reasonable act uh, that you should um, be engaging with with your, with your body. Um, whether that's selling organs, uh, selling sex, or, or some other sort of thing. So I'm, I'm skeptical of those kind of claims. I think the argument about power is a much more um, powerful argument. Um, you know, aren't you going to be in a situation where people can be exploited if you allow these trades? The answer to that is yes, but compared to what? If you don't allow the trades to take place, people will be exploited. Um, how can adding an opportunity to people's set, even if it's not a great opportunity, actually make them worse off than in a situation where that opportunity is not available? Um, now, some people would make the argument that even adding the opportunity somehow does make people worse off because they can get trapped into a situation um, that they subsequently just cannot escape from. Um, but again, you, you have to look at what the alternatives might be. And, and my feeling is that in most cases, um, the alternatives are normally worse. Otherwise, people wouldn't be thinking about entering into these kind of activities in the first place. So I take it one of the uh, background assumptions that's doing some work here is, at least if we legalized sale in organs, then the people who need organs would get organs, which currently they're not doing. Most yeah. people who need an organ transplant are on long, long waiting lists, and many die waiting for an organ transplant. And I suppose one point to be made here is well if some if there was more supply the demand would be better satisfied and so the, you know we mustn't forget the consequences of the people who are going to benefit from this even if on the one hand in the you know, on one hand side of the balance sheet there are people who may have to make a, a poor choice and and we may ourselves hope never to be in that situation and that's bad on the other hand the flip side of that is a good is being produced which is fewer people who need organs aren't getting organs and i take it that this is actually borne out by the empirical evidence in iran which is as far as i'm aware is the only country in the world which does allow organ sales and where their waiting lists for organ transplants are just incredibly low compared to the rest of the world. So there seems to be strong empirical um, support for, for, that, for that outcome. But you mentioned uh, in your reply there another area which it tends to be very controversial where many people have strong intuitions against sale of the body in general and that of course is trading sex. Um, many people would say that prostitution is an evil which disproportionately affects women because again it tends to be vulnerable women who are doing this out of uh, necessity or desperation and insofar as we should protect people from being forced into market transactions because they're simply desperate we should therefore criminalize the sale of sex but i take it that 
even though you can't make an argument in that case, similar to the one about organs, about reducing the, the number of people on the other side of the equation because it's a different sort of transaction. I take it nonetheless from what you've said, you still would say that legalizing sex, the sale of sex, uh, would still be the optimal thing to do. So could you just explain to us why that is? Well, let, let me first go, let me just quickly go back to the... Um, sure, yeah. I think I didn't quite uh, fully answer the, the original question. So you're quite right that one of the like social welfare arguments is that there are people who need kidneys out there, they're not getting them. Uh, and if you allow a market to, to take place, it will be a mechanism for those people to get those kidneys and also for the people who are supplying them to improve their position by engaging in these sorts of trades. So I think that argument is, is a powerful one. And it's also buttressed by um, an argument that I think Jason Brennan has made in, in some context, or Jason Brennan and Peter Dugorski, which is that if people can give their kidneys away for free, uh, there's nothing that worsens the situation by allowing them to trade those, those organs. And that's basically a view I would, would endorse. Um, if you're allowed to give a kidney away, then why can't you sell it? Nobody's saying everybody should sell their kidneys. Um, but you're simply saying, why shouldn't that option be there? Especially if it's an option that can mean that other people get kidneys that they otherwise wouldn't have. Um, and also people have got an option to improve their, their living standards in a way that they might not otherwise have. Now, I think when it comes to, to sex, although it's a, it's a more, I don't know whether it's a more controversial topic or not, but in some ways, um, you know, the, the arguments are not uh, dissimilar. Um, if you can have sex with people for free, um, why can't you uh, sell the sex? Uh, not something that, that I would want to do, um, and not something that I'm sure many people would, would want to do, but, but what is the moral evil that's introduced by simply allowing the exchange of money to take place? Um, it, it's not obvious to me, uh, given that different cultures treat sex differently, um, that it's obviously some kind of moral evil that's introduced by allowing people to engage in the sale. Now, the point about um, prostitution, about the vulnerability of women, um, or of anyone actually who's in the situation where they feel that out of necessity to survive, they have to engage in prostitution. I think the argument will be very similar to the one with the, uh, the kidneys. You know, what are the alternatives facing these people? Ideally, we would be in a world where they have enough resources not to even consider engaging in this sort of activity. If it's not the sort of thing that they would do out of some sort of uh, sense of enjoyment or the exercise of their autonomy. Um, but if those resources are not there, how does it improve things for those women to remove the option for them to engage in these kind of trades? Especially when, and I think there's a lot of em empirical evidence to support this. Um, the alternative is that you simply drive the trade underground. You have a kind of prohibition type phenomenon. So that the prostitution still goes on, but it takes place in much less transparent circumstances where the exploitation that people are concerned about is actually more likely to take place than in a situation if you had a market, if you like, happening um, above ground and in the open. Great. But I suppose a reply here would be, 
that's all well and good at a certain level of abstraction about how markets function about autonomy. But the truth is that these kinds of markets are always embedded in social contexts. And one answer, we might call this the feminist answer, or what is unfortunately sometimes labeled the radical feminist, I think unfortunate because I think all feminism is radical, but would, would be that, look, this is going to take place in a patriarchal society. It's quite revealing that we've already assumed that the sale of sex will be from women to men. We haven't been assuming that it's men to women, which is very rare, or in fact, men to men, which is much less rare. But nonetheless, the very fact that we all associate prostitution and, and certain feminists would say it's important that we use that word and not the, the concept of sex work because they'd want to say it is not simply work. That what's going on here is the reproduction of certain forms of social domination such that a group of human beings who are typically dominated by another, so in this case, women by men, are further forced into dependency on men, thus reinforcing not only an economic dependency, but a social subjugation uh, of wider gender norms. And that means that we should not allow the sale of this thing because it isn't simply about one-to-one -one transactions between autonomous agents in relative differing levels of, of economic yeah. luxury or desperation. Yeah. There's a wider social normative context here. What would you say in reply to that kind of answer? Well, I think it's a very genuine concern. There's no doubt that uh, if these relationships take place in the current sort of cultural or social and economic setting, um, that you could reproduce some of those disadvantages that women uh, face. That domination can be reproduced through these kind of structures. But again, the, the question that I would pose is compared to what? You know, if uh, the position of women is not being uh, improved by other kind of institutional arrangements in, in society, then it seems to me that depriving people of an opportunity to have more income, uh, which could then, even if only incrementally, start to improve their relative status or their bargaining power, cannot be a good thing to do. Um, especially if you um, are criminalizing an activity, which arguably reduces even further the status of people, so that women who are engaging in prostitution are seen as you know, borderline criminals. Actually, criminalizing an activity doesn't seem to me to be something that is in improving the status of women. More generally, I think, there's an argument for saying the market more generally allowing people to engage in trade could be one, not necessarily the only, but it could be one of the mechanisms that we might want to use to break down some of these gender stereotypes um, or about the kind of roles that people should, should be playing. So, you know, why not have um, men and women being allowed to sell themselves um, in this way for sexu in, in sexual um, activities being for sale. Not saying we want people to be doing that in some um, sense that, hey, this is great, but why not allow it as a way of challenging social norms or conventions about what is acceptable, acceptable sexual conduct? Um, I think in a, in a strange sort of way, um, market mechanisms allowing people to engage in subversive trades can be a way to break down some of the sort of stereotypical views that there are about things like sex. Um, that's not to dismiss the concern that you could reproduce notions of domination, but it seems to me if we're going to make those arguments, we also need to consider the way in which allowing trade could disrupt those, those sorts of, uh, of notions as well. What if somebody said, 
okay, that's all well and good. But if you have just a free market of trade in sex, again, similar to with the organ situation, what you're going to have are third parties moving in and exploiting yeah. and trying to control the, if you like the suppliers mm-hmm. of the labor in often like mm-hmm. the women and, as from what we know from historical experience, what will happen is that very unpleasant men will quickly move in and start dominating those women and exploiting them. So they'll be not only uh, transacting potentially in an uneven market yeah. relationship with, with, with a client, but will end up being controlled by a pimp, as is usually the case. Yeah. And surely we need to make prostitution illegal to stop that kind of behavior. Um, well, let, let's take, there's two issues there. First of all, the idea of middlemen being inherently objectionable, I think is something that needs to be challenged. Middlemen in all markets perform an important function. They create a market. They bring buyers and sellers together. Um, it's through middlemen that, that markets operate. They're not doing an activity that is, is unnecessary um, because in many cases, buyers and sellers may not be aware of each other's existence. And therefore there is a gap in the market to bring those people together. Um, all sorts of um, activities in markets are about having middlemen. So there's nothing inherently bad about middlemen. Now, the issue you have to look at is, is there something about these markets in particular that mean they're going to be subject to forms of exploitation or the reproduction of domination in the way that you, you spoke about? Um, now, in my view, you can't rule out the possibility that that would be the case. And I wouldn't say you, you wouldn't ever have situations where um, a market interaction, allowing a market interaction would allow that kind of domination to arise. Um, but it's not obvious to me that that would always be the case. And it's not obvious to me that the alternative, which in many cases is a patriarchal society or a, a society which dominates women in some way, um, provides better routes out of that domination than allowing people to engage in these uh, sorts of trade. Um, as a general rule, I would say that the more these things are out in the open, although you're not going to eliminate domination, you're going to reduce the amount of domination compared to a situation where you drive it underground and you do have pimps as opposed to actually, you know, um, open trading organizations, which are branded as they would be are in most other markets. And where if there are transgressions, if people are abused, then there is a mechanism of, of, um, to, to address that. So think about it as an example, and I guess this applies to uh, the, the organ case as well. We have lots of examples of middlemen who arise in markets precisely to deal with these problems, problems of asymmetric information or problems of trying to avoid exploitation. So we know in the coffee market, there are fair trade coffee brands, which are branding themselves, selling to people precisely on the grounds that um, they're not engaging in dominatory practices or that they're trying to make trade more progressive in a certain way. Now, there's lots of arguments about whether those are effective mechanisms or, or not, but there's certainly an attempt where you have a market which allows the trade to take place, but you also have the middlemen operating away, which is trying to, to limit exploitation or domination. And I don't see any reason why you wouldn't have similar kinds of third-party middlemen who are responsible agents operating in some of these other kinds of markets, whether they're markets for organs, markets for sex, or, or, or something else. Great. So I take it an important point in the background here is 
a market in any particular good or service doesn't mean an unregulated market. That's right. We can still have rules about yeah. how the transactions yeah. take place. Great. Yeah. But let's, let's you have, I mean, you, I think you have a secondary debate there, which is about how is that regulation provided? Uh, you can have a, re- a market that's regulated purely by uh, market mechanisms, you know, so it's purely on supply and demand, or it's on the basis of regulatory standards that are set by agencies within the market. And I think the fair trade example is an example of that. Or you can have a market which is one regulated by the government. Or you can have a hybrid, which is one where you've got a market where it's regulated by some combination of government regulation and the activities of private parties uh, to try to provide regulation within the market. Great. How about we now turn, though, to a really difficult example, at least one that many people would find extremely counterintuitive. We're actually recording this on November the 5th and we're still awaiting the results from the American presidential election. But what if somebody were to suggest, well, on on the basis of the logic of everything you've said right now, why shouldn't people be allowed to legally sell their votes? Perhaps I don't really care who, who wins out of Biden and Trump. Maybe I live in a swing state and I've realized that maybe there are other people from out of my state who would really like me to, uh, to vote for their candidate. I don't care who wins, but I do care about having $1,000. Maybe it's a rich benefactor. Maybe it's a, a large political organization. Why shouldn't I be allowed to sell my vote? Why somebody else, shouldn't somebody else be allowed to buy my vote? Or maybe they should. Well, that's a, that's a very <laughs> difficult issue. I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm not sure what my view is um, on whether or not we should have buying or selling of votes. And for me, it comes down to an issue about externalities. So if you think about the examples that we've been discussing so far, um, they are cases where you're talking about facilitating trade between two parties. And the assumption in you know, most sort of economic theory is if, it, if an exchange takes place, it's because both parties expect to benefit. They may be wrong about that, but they expect to benefit, otherwise the trade would not happen. Now, people will make arguments that, oh, well, when the trade happens, there's some kind of external effect to third parties. But in most of the examples that we've given, we've been discussing so far, organ sales, um, prostitution, I think those arguments are, are, are wrong. There aren't external effects. Or if they are external effects, they're more the kind of effects which are not the ones that economists considered externalities. They're more to do with the fact that people may be offended by the activities that other people engage in, as opposed to being directly harmed by them in some sense. So my argument in those cases is you should allow the trades because um, there aren't really externalities, at least not compared to some alternative. And in principle, at least, it's something that can be mutually beneficial. I think with votes, um, the issue is much more, more complicated. So um, if you think about it, and you know, many people will, will disagree with my view on this, but voting is an activity that almost of necessity generates external effects. If you allow a system of majority rule, that means that what the majority decides um, it effectively can impose on, on a minority. Or if the democratic system works in such a way that organized minorities are able to impose their views, uh, through legislation, through, through the political process in some way, then external effects are being generated. Some people are having things forced upon them that they didn't want. Now, it strikes me, should you have the right to, 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 to sell that? Um, I'm not sure. You know, do you have the, do you have the right to, to sell 
something which can be used to harm other people? I don't know. Um, in the same way that I'm unsure personally about my, my views on democracy itself, I think we need democracy because it's the, you know, the least bad of all the available systems. But I don't lionize the idea that um, we make decisions by some people um, being sufficient in, in sufficient numbers to impose their particular view on a smaller number of people. I think that's a principle you might need to use in certain circumstances, but it's not something that should be generalized ideally to all decisions. I think the argument, the strongest argument for democracy is that you might need to make certain collective decisions because there are public goods or collective action type problems involved in a certain situation. But equally, you can, you can say that within democracy itself, those problems can arise. So it's not clear what how many decisions should be subject to democratic decision making. Um, and likewise, it's not clear to me whether or not the right to participate in that kind of decision making should be something that you have the right to sell. It's very interesting that you focus almost exclusively then on consequences and, and externalities. Yeah. And I guess you're coming up this very much from a political economy point of view. Yeah. But what would you say to somebody who said, hang on a minute, part of the point of democracy is, however imperfectly in practice, it attempts to enshrine a principle of equality, which is that we all are equal and we all get one vote. But if some people can start selling their votes, then in principle, the rich will get more votes than the poor because they will simply be able to find, even if it's only a small percentage, they will nonetheless be able to find a certain percentage of people willing to sell their votes and they will thus be able to exercise more weight in the political system than other people and that's fundamentally wrong and so focusing on the consequences or the externalities is is not to really see what's at stake here how would you respond to someone making that argument um well that would be one of the reasons why not the not the argument that the rich um can take advantage of, of vote buying in this way but the idea that um external effects might be generated that is one of the reasons why I'm quite skeptical of the idea of selling votes. So because you are selling the right for somebody else potentially to engage in actions which affect negatively other people. You know, so um, we don't have a right, um, in, a, in a sense, in, in my view, to, 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 to sell violence. You know, I think violence is an activity that is, is wrong unless, it, unless you're in an MMA situation and you're consenting to, to be punched or whatever. Uh, violence is not something that is, 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 is morally acceptable. Um, so we don't have a right to, to, to sell that. The area of voting is more complicated precisely because you're in this gray zone where it can be used for very negative purposes that you might want to constrain anyway. Um, and that will be my concern about then allowing people to, to sell that right onto somebody else. So I am concerned about externalities in the case of voting. That's one of the reasons why I don't know where the balance of the argument lies. Um, I'm not someone, though, as I think it should be pretty obvious, who sort of um, thinks voting itself is wonderful, um, precisely because I think it can be used to uh, impose costs on other parties uh, by people effectively ganging up on, on minorities. And that's, and that's not something that I think is particularly desirable either. What about a sort of nearby case then? What about judicial decisions or criminal cases? Why should judges not be allowed to, uh, or maybe they should be allowed to put out 
to the highest bidder the verdicts that they come to um most people would think you know that's absolutely something that we shouldn't be allowed to buy and sell um but why exactly or maybe not maybe they should well i mean so i don't think i think the idea of having legal functions available for sale um that's that's not something that that i am opposed to i mean i think there are many legal services that are available for sale and i think here the issue is is one about what kind of mechanisms will give people trust in the legal process so if it's the case that um you can just buy and sell any kind of an opinion to produce the result that you want then there isn't really going to be much trust in that kind of process from the population at large and i think one of the things that people forget in these sorts of discussions is the role of competition so the argument there would be you might have competing legal systems my expectation would be in a situation where you have competing legal systems people would gravitate away from a system which enables people just to pay for the, the decisions that they actually want you know the, the function of a legal system is to provide some measure of um, trust in a set of institutional procedures where there might be disputes between people you want a resolution of those disputes in a reasonably satisfactory way if you're in a regime simply where um you know if you've got more money you can pay for the result that you want then the broader trust in that kind of system from people at large is not going to hold so i would expect there to be a competitive advantage for systems which are in theory open for sale in the sense that services are open for sale but that what is being sold is a process in which you have many of the kind of protections against corruption um that that people are concerned with does that does that make sense I suppose it does to the point, I guess one, one response here would be, but the, the whole structure of a legal system means there could only ever, there can only be one for it to function. You can't have compete, competing legal systems because then you get into a Hobbesian problem of, yeah. well, if people don't get the view that they like, they'll go somewhere else. And then who enforces the final decision? Yeah. And then you, so it seems like this is in some ways a natural yeah. monopoly. So assume that there is a natural monopoly. Why mm -hmm. not within that natural monopoly? Like whoever's got the power will enforce their decision. So, so, I think it's a little bit um, implausible, say, to, to move from, well, you know, it, it, this will outcompete the rival because let's assume that there, there is only one, but within the one and enforcing its decisions, why not allow some people within that to trade their, their judgments um, uh, for, for whoever has the highest, uh, makes the highest bid? Well, in, in a monopoly situation, I'm not sure I would allow that. Okay. Um, so if you were in a monopoly situation, I don't think I would allow that. Right, I see. On the point of whether law is inherently a natural monopoly, uh, I would disagree. I, I, I don't think it is the case that law is a natural monopoly. So if you look globally, um, we don't have a monolithic uh, legal system that, there's a, a, that has emerged naturally through some kind of market process where all the competitors are eliminated to the point where we have one monopoly global legal system. You actually have multiple interlocking legal systems and within that context, an awful lot of legal dispute um, resolution is carried out by private arbitration. So there are something like, I think, 10,000 private arbitration agencies that operate globally um, to deal with uh, transborder trade disputes. And, you know, when people enter into those kind of uh, uh, cross-border contracts, they choose an arbitration agency in advance that's going to resolve the dispute. And those 
agencies are chosen on the basis of a reputation for being neutral, not being engaged in um, nefarious sort of uh, practices. Is that perfect? No, it isn't. Does it eliminate corruption? No, it doesn't. But the issue is, compared to what? Uh, compared to a regime where you did have one uh, monopoly global legal regime, which eliminates all kind of competition, uh, it strikes me that uh, that that will be the comparison that you that you have to make. And I don't see any reason why that type of analysis can't apply on a, a more localized scale, for example, within countries, as well as it applies at the, the global level. Great. I think perhaps that might be the most counterintuitive thing that you've said in the entire podcast. But it's also, I think, a really good place for us to leave it. That I think that was a really fantastic and illuminating discussion. So, Mark, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Paul.